0: Well, good morning, everyone. Um, I am really excited uh, about this morning. We are entering into a brand new series of teachings based on our church's belief statement. So for the next 13 weeks, we're going to be looking at uh, doctrine. I know that seems like a a scary word these days. A lot of people don't like that word, doctrine. but. The word doctrine is just a Latin phrase for the word teaching. So doctrine essentially means the teaching. What is the teaching of the church? What is the teaching um, that we are to hold to and to believe? Uh, Our current church environment uh, is taking its clues from culture and is starting to uh, embrace uh, uh, doubt, uh, ambiguity, uncertainty, um, starting to uh, move away from uh, believing some of the teachings of the script, the scriptures brought us. We we come um, we're coming to a time where there is no such thing as like real truths. No, nothing is really true. It's only what uh, I perceive or what you perceive, and we can all agree to disagree. Or basically tolerance is, is kind of the name of the game today. And that's starting to kind of creep into the church culture, which is fine to an extent, uh, except when it starts to uh, erode our confidence in what the scriptures are teaching. So you're starting to see valuing doubt over faith. You're starting to see the um, embracing uncertainty over conviction and an, a vagueness about spiritual matters rather than confidence in what the Bible is teaching. So I believe that this perspective is actually at odds with what Jesus taught, what the early church taught, what all of the Bible teaches. The Bible doesn't teach, well, we don't really know. God is so mysterious we can't understand. No, the scriptures reveal to us who God is truly is. And so that's why I'm excited about this series, because what we believe about God, what we believe about man, what we believe about sin, salvation, all of these kinds of issues really matter. It matters tremendously, it matters tremendously to Jesus as well, too. So uh, that's why I'm really thrilled about this series. So a couple of a little bit of announcements as well, too. We are going through the 13 paragraphs of our belief statement. Uh, this statement was largely taken from uh, the belief statement uh, the statement of confession and faith for uh, an organization called the Gospel Coalition. It's not a denomination but it's a coalition of lots of different uh, members from lots of different denominations And so we're going to be studying through those each week and we also have a resource for all of you as well too. So everyone here who's a regular attender, we actually have um, a hardcover copy of a book that has, Uh, greater, that explores all 13 of these paragraphs, all 13 of these statements in greater detail. And so uh, I'm thrilled about this series because as we teach through this series, you all will have this book in your hand as well too to study further each week. And so there will be reading assignments. All right. So you guys are all for reading assignments. You ready for some homework? The students are like, no, not anymore, no more. So there's one of these for every family. There will be reading assignments each week. And uh, I'm thrilled about this. What do you guys, uh, hopefully you're thrilled about this as well, too. So all right, uh, so the, you will, these are available in the back. So just go back in the back when we're done and pick up one uh, if your name is on the list. If you if your name isn't on the list and we don't have enough copies for you, write your name down and we will get you one as soon as possible, all right? So. With that announcement and that little disclaimer, we're uh, going to go through the very first paragraph together this morning. It's, uh, it's a huge one. It's a massive one. I was, um, I was thinking this could be three weeks just in this first paragraph. So I'm going to rush through. We're going to go through this, this paragraph. Uh, I'm going to shoot a lot of things at you. If you have a lot of questions, uh, write your questions down. Come and talk to me afterwards uh, because this is... This is pretty big. This one is pretty big. So what we're going to do is begin by reading it together. Then we'll go through, um, through the, the uh, paragraph kind of line by line, so to speak. And there is a handout there available for you to follow along and write some notes as well, too. So are you ready? You ready to dig in? Yeah. We, need, uh, we need to put on our thinking caps kind of this morning. So uh, let's read this together. It is on the screen. And this first paragraph is called The Triune God. Not a word you hear every day. All right, let's read this together. We believe in one God eternally existing in three equally divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect both in his love and in his holiness, he is the creator of all things visible and invisible and is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration, immortal and eternal. He perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereign rules over all things and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes To redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. Easy, right? We're going to go through all of that this morning. Um, Where we begin is where we should begin, where we should always begin discussions on what the church believes. We will begin with God himself. We will begin with God. And that's where the scriptures begin, Genesis just Genesis one one the very opening line of scripture just assumes God. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So we will begin with God, and our beliefs should begin with God and God Himself. However, when I use the word God, there are many different understandings uh, of what that means by God. Many different concepts. You could be using God in conversations in, in your home at Grocery stores at school, meeting other people, and you might God might come up in the subject. But you realize maybe not all, everybody's understanding of what is meant by the term God is the same. So let me kind of sketch through a couple of uh, perspectives on who, uh, of what is often meant by God, or perspectives on God. The first one is, atheism is atheism. Theos is a Greek word for God, so atheism is no God. So one perspective on God is that there, there isn't one. God doesn't exist. There is no such thing. Apparently, we've made him up. Another one is agnosticism. This means not know. Agnosco means do not know. So um, God either they don't know that God exists or they believe that what if there is a God, he cannot be known. So those are two perspectives. On God. The third one is deism. Deism. This view believes that there is a God. God created the universe. He created the world and then just basically bolted. He took off. He has no involvement in everyday worldly activities at all. And this is actually probably the view of God that's held by most people in the West, maybe in, uh, in America in particular, I mean, they might believe, if you ask most Americans, they would say, yes, I believe in God. But when you really start to probe and find out what it is they understand about God, uh, and we talked about this phrase, moralistic therapeutic deism a while back, Uh, most people's understanding of God is that God wants us to be good. Um, God wants us to feel good about ourselves. um, But he's basically not involved in my everyday life. Okay, that would be deism. God exists. He created the world. Um, he's the ground of some sort of moral understanding of how we should behave. But then he's, he took off, has no involvement. The fourth one is pantheism. Pantheism. Pan means all. So this basically says that all that you see is God. The world is God. The universe is God. It's a little bit different than the next one, which is panentheism. That means all is in God. That's literally what that means. All is in God. And so the world or the universe is a part of God. So it is God, but God is actually bigger than the created universe. See, these are, these are perspectives that would, you would find in maybe like Eastern religions. Another view is polytheism. Polytheism. Meaning there somebody might believe in God, but that's just one God among many different gods. This is, um, uh, this is prevalent. We saw this in the book of Acts. When Paul, in Acts chapter 17, went to Athens, the city of Athens, and he goes around the city and it says that he was grieved in his spirit because he looked and he saw that the city was full of idols. I mean, they had multiple, multiple gods, an entire pantheon of gods and goddesses, I should say. So that was true in the New Testament world. It was actually true also in uh, Israel, ancient Israel in the Old Testament, Israel's neighbors, the Hittites, Jebusites, uh, they would have multiple gods and goddesses as well, too. So that's polytheism. And the last one is monotheism. Monotheism, the belief that there is just one true God, different than deism because this God is a personal God. He's not an impersonal force like maybe pantheism is or panentheism is. He is a personal God, but... Uh, He's different than deism. He is actively involved in the world today. That's monotheism. Usually, um, Judaism is considered a monotheistic religion. Islam, I believe as well, is considered a monotheistic religion. But the Christian understanding, the orthodox Christian understanding, is similar to monotheism. It's a little bit different And that is Trinitarianism, Trinitarianism, or the Trinity, or the triune God. We believe that there is one God, and this is how it's divined in our very first line here. There is one God who eternally exists in three equally divine persons, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So uh, here's a kind of a a diagram kind of illustrating this. If you were to try and illustrate it, I know. This is a huge concept. It's maybe difficult to understand. It's not a contradiction, but sometimes it's a little bit of a mystery. Um, But the word Trinity, it comes to us from the Latin, and it means three in oneness. And it's describing the biblical perspective of God. One God in three persons. And this was finalized at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD, if you would like to write that down as well too, N-I-C-E-A, in 325 Let me point out, by the way, they didn't make this up then. They were just saying, finalizing as a church got together as a council and said, no, this is what the scriptures teach. And they needed to do that because there were lots of different heresies or false teachings, false understandings of this. Okay. So Trinity, and this is how it's pictured. The father is God, the son is God, and the Holy Spirit is God, but the father and the son are not the same. The Father is not the son the son is not the Spirit and the Spirit is not the father there's three di- different persons but one God one God easy right so I can move on that's easy so let me go through a couple of scripture passages to kind of help to flesh this out a little bit too the God of the Old Testament the God of the God that's referred to as the, uh, God the Father uh, in the New Testament, but, you know, the God of the Old Testament God. We get his name, and his name is Yahweh. So the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. So turn with me to Exodus chapter 3. So the God who created the universe, the God who spoke to Abraham, called Abraham, and said, go to the land that I will show you. And the God of Abraham's descendants, Isaac and Jacob the God of the twelve tribes of Israel, who find themselves enslaved in Egypt, this same God is the God who speaks to Moses. He speaks with; he's with Joshua. He speaks with Joshua. He speaks with the judges. Um, he speaks to with David and Solomon and the uh, other kings and the prophets. This God, we re, we understand who he is, what his covenantal name is in Exodus chapter 3. So let me give the background here for you. Exodus chapter 3, the people of Israel are enslaved in Egypt. Pharaoh is being very harsh with the Egyptians or with the, um, the Israelites. And um, we were introduced to Moses earlier in the chapter, but now Moses is 80 years old. He's kind of lo- lost in exile. He's shepherding a group of sheep for his father-in-law. And God appears to him in a burning bush. Moses sees this burning bush and he's intrigued. It's not burning up. What's going on? He walks over to go see it. And at the beginning of chapter um, three, we'll say we'll begin in um, verse three. And Moses said, I will turn aside and see this great sight. Why the bush is not burned. Now, when the Lord saw that he turned aside to see God called to him out of the bush. Moses, Moses, he said. By the way, it's, it's significant every time you see the name, God calling the name of someone twice in the Bible. This is one of the, those times, seven times it happens. This is one of the times. The other one's Abraham when he's about ready to offer his son Isaac on his, his sacrifice. God interrupts and says, Abraham, Abraham. That's significant. We'll come back to that. He says, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. And he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet. For the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. They continue the conversation, and now skip on down to verse 13. God has, this God, Yahweh, um, introduces his name. To Moses, Moses says to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you. And they ask me, what is his name? What shall I ta- What shall I say to them? So God had said, you're going to go to the Pharaoh. You're going to say, let my people go. And he's like, OK, but I go. I mean, there's lots of different gods, especially in Egypt. There's a sun god. There's, there's all different kinds of God. Like, I have to give them a name. I can't just say God. So Egypt was polytheistic, right? And so God gives him this answer. Verse 14, God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. And the word there, too, if you see like a footnote, or if you have a study Bible, uh, this is the word with, uh, for the divine name of God would be spelled Y, W, H, W. Uh, or yod Vavhe vav he in Hebrew, and it means, means I am. And we don't really know how it's pronounced because the uh, ancient Israelites felt the name was so sacred they wouldn't pronounce it. So this is God's covenantal name, Yahweh, the Lord. Whenever you see in the Old Testament it capitalized, L-O-R-D, all capitals, that's referring to this name. It's very significant that you understand this name, the Lord, or Yahweh, you would say. This is God's covenantal name. This is God the Father all throughout the Old Testament. And this is the God who says in Isaiah 45, you could write that down. He says, I am God. This is Yahweh speaking. I am God. There is no other. There is only one God. So it's not really debated. The God of the Old Testament, God of the Father, uh, known as Yahweh, is God. But the Son, Jesus, is also God as well too. Jesus in the New Testament is God. Let me turn with me to John chapter 8. There are many places in the New Testament where it speaks of Jesus as being God. Yet he was fully man, he had a body, he was born of a woman, he had flesh, he had blood, he had bones, but he was also fully God. Jesus is in a conversation with some religious leaders. In John chapter 8, go down to about verse uh, 53, we'll say. He's in a debate with the religious leaders. And in verse 53, the religious leaders ask Jesus a question. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be, they ask him. And Jesus answered... Verse 54, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father, this is the word father there, who glorifies me of whom you say he is our God, but you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. Jesus was really good at winning friends and influencing people. Um, I would be a liar like you, but I do not, but I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham, this is a pretty bold statement Jesus makes here. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. What's he saying? Abraham rejoiced at seeing my day. He saw it and was glad. So this immediately starts to... raised the curiosity of the religious leaders at the time. So they say this. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and you have seen Abraham? Like, right. You're you're on the verge of being labeled as a complete lunatic, as a nut. And you're going to be in really big trouble unless you knock it off, basically. But notice what Jesus says here. Verse 58. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was... What does it say? I am. Before Abraham was, I am. Jesus is claiming the name of Yahweh in the Old Testament. Moses says, who shall I say sent you? He says, I am who I am. Tell him I am sent you. And so Jesus says, oh, by the way, I I know who Abraham is. And uh, Abraham and I go way back. And... um, (laughs) And Abraham was looking forward to my day. And, he, and so they ask him this question. So you're not yet 50 years old. He goes, no, before Abraham even existed, I am. I encounter, I come into conversations with people often that say, there's no place in the Bible where it says that Jesus says he's God. And I go, well, maybe not in those exact terms. But right here, and in, this is in several other places, right here, Jesus is saying, I am Yahweh. I am God. And if you don't believe me, read the next, what, what it says here. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself out and went out of the temple. Why were they claiming to stone him? Or why did they want uh, to stone him? Because he was claiming to be God. Let's turn with me just a couple more pages over to John chapter 10. A similar incident kind of happens. Um, Jesus says at the Feast of Dedication in Jerusalem at winter. This is verse 22. And he gets into another conversation with the religious leaders in verse 24, chapter 10. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Messiah, the Christ, tell us plainly. Now, the Christ was uh, the servant of the Lord in the Old Testament, um, in the prophets, Yahweh was saying, I'm going to send a servant who's going to come and rule over my people. So this is, this is promised beforehand. It's the Messiah. Uh, the Greek word uh, is Christos, where we get it translated as Christ. It's the word for Messiah, Mashiach. Okay? And so they ask, tell us, plainly, are you claiming to be this Messiah? Person, this servant of the Lord. Jesus answered them, I told you and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe because you are not part of my flock. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. And then he could skip down to verse, um, well, let's just read. Verse 28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. And this is the kicker verse here. I and the Father are one. I and the Father are one. This is a similar statement, a similar claim that he's making that he made just a couple chapters earlier. And you don't believe that he's claiming to be God here? Read the next verse. The Jews picked up stones again to stone him. In verse 31. And Jesus answered them, I have shown you many good works from the Father, For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, It is not for a good work that we are going to stone you, but for blasphemy, because you, being a man, make yourself God. Really clear. Jesus is God. He certainly believed that he was God. And his earlier followers, after Jesus was crucified, dead in a grave and buried for three days, came back to life and appeared to them, showed them the scars on his hands, they believed he is God too. Thomas declares, when Thomas who wouldn't believe unless he saw Jesus with his own eyes and touched him with his hands, when that event finally did happen, I believe it was in the upper room, and Thomas declares, my Lord and my God. So God the Father is God, God the Son is God, and God the Holy Spirit. Spirit is God. And we talked about this in the, our Acts series as well, too. Um, but there's many places where the Holy Spirit is referenced as God as well, too. He is a person. He is not an impersonal force. The Holy Spirit is a he. It's described uh, with a personal pronouns, he. The Holy Spirit can be grieved. The Holy Spirit can um, be... Uh, uh, grieved, it could be uh, rejected. It's the Holy Spirit is a person, and is God as well too. So all three are God. God, the Father is God. God, the Son is God. The Holy Spirit is God. They're one God, but three persons. And this is very, very important. Now I want to show you a couple pla- passages where all three of these kind of come into play. Okay, so turn with me to. Um, oh, where should we go? John, well, let's go to Matthew chapter, we're going to the baptism, the baptism of Jesus. We'll look at Matthew chapter three. Matthew chapter three, beginning in verse 13. Now, John the Baptist, Jesus's cousin, came repenting. He was kind of the last Old Testament prophet. He occurs in the New Testament, but he's the last prophet Before Jesus. And so John the Baptist comes baptizing. He's saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And Jesus comes out and he wants to be baptized. And John the Baptist refuses. He says, no, no, no. I need to be baptized by you. And uh, he goes, no. Jesus says, no. We need to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And so look at what happens. Um, Verse. uh, John finally consented. And in verse 16 of chapter 3. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water... And behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw what? The Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, let's all read this together. This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. So here you have all three persons of the Trinity appearing right in this event. You have God, the Son, Jesus, getting baptized, coming out of the water, God the Spirit now descending upon him. And God the Father who says, this is my son, whom I love. All three. So there there is one God in three persons. Not one God who shows up in three different ways. That is not orthodox Christian understanding. That's a heresy known as modalism. Modalism. Meaning God just kind of puts on three different masks. But here you have all three appearing in the same place. So you have to have three separate persons. It's not one God, with one person who shows up in three different ways, right? There's there's a denomination that actually holds that as their beliefs. It's um, um, uh, oneness. They call them oneness Pentecostals. Um, You might be familiar. T.D. Jakes, for instance, um, holds that view. Uh, Artists like uh, Phillips, Craig, and Dean they also uh, are part of this denomination as well too. This is not trinitarian. This is not one God, three equal persons. Got it? So here you have all three. And there's several other places where that happens as well too. So why is this important? Why is the Trinity important? There's a lot of reasons why this is important. So we'll look at our reflections here. Oh, I'm sorry, I was way behind on the slides. <laughs> why is the Trinity important? And why is it practical? Why does this matter? Are we just kind of splitting hairs here? What's the big deal? Why is this so crucial and important? The reason why, um, there's many reasons, but one reason I want to focus on today, why this is so important, is because you have in the Godhead perfect relationship. Perfect relationship. Three persons, but in one being. One being one essence, but three persons in perfect, loving relationship. The Father loves the Son. The Son loves the Father. The Father loves the Holy Spirit. They're all working together. They've always existed, and they live in a loving relationship. I'd get in conversations late in dorm rooms in college, and people would ask the question, "Why in the world? You know, you look at the, you know, kind of sin and evil and everything that's going on in the world. Why in the world would God even make human beings? Why? What's, you know, couldn't? Why did He allow certain things to happen? Why did? He? And I've heard this explanation before. Um, God made human beings because He was lonely and He needed to have relationship. That's actually not the proper understanding of what's happening in the Trinity. God didn't make human beings because he was lonely and needed something. That would make God deficient in some area. No. God already had perfect relationship. The problem was when he created man, he realized that the man is alone and it's not good that the man is alone. So he creates another person. He wants humankind to experience the unity, the loving relationship, different persons but who are bonded together becoming one that's modeled for us in the Trinity that's what it means to be love. when the Bible says in First John 4 God is love this is what it's talking about the fact that God's essence is love is based on the fact that there are three persons who are in one perfect loving relationship with one another sound mm-hmm. we good we good on that okay some confused looks come to me afterwards because this is only the first point. I need to get moving on. So um, so the triune God. We believe in one God, eternal, existing, and three equally divine persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. Okay? Now we're going to do the, the, um, skip down a, one whole sentence to he is the creator. And we're going to do these out of order. I'm going to do number three, Attributes. He is the creator of all things visible and invisible and therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration immortal and eternal he perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning sustains and sovereignly rules over all things and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation now it lists kind of here uh, several attributes of who God is and so those are also blanks on your sheet you could fill out as well too he is the creator There's the one God who has created everything, visible and invisible. He is immortal. This means, it literally means that he doesn't die or cannot die. He lives forever. By the way, when it says that he is the creator, this is talking about um, all three persons are present at creation. All three persons were present at creation. He's immortal, so he does not he cannot die. He's eternal. Um, this is the doctrine that God has no beginning, no end, and that He is uh, He can see all time equal, equally valid, or equally, equally um, vividly see all, all of time. He is his sovereignty and His providence. There is um, there's a view that's been prevalent maybe in the last decade or so called open theism, which uh, is a belief that, well, there really isn't a future. We don't know what the future is. And if, you know, because it's a, you know, space-time continuum kind of thing or something like that, we don't know what the future is. And, um, and because the future doesn't exist. Because we haven't had it yet, right? And because the future doesn't exist, we haven't had it yet. Therefore, God doesn't even know it. So God does not know, um, he does not have exhaustive foreknowledge over future things and future events. Um, but the New Testament and the Old Testament clearly speak of God vividly describing things that are going to happen in future events. Um, so this is, this is spoken of as his sovereignty and providence. God is ruling and uh, overseeing, has oversight over all of creation, contrary to this uh, open theism. And the last one here that it is mentioned is that he is the Redeemer. Redeemer. We talked about this in our Ruth series. This is the this is the meaning of this is why we've chosen Redeemer as the name of, of this church. Because this is God buying back a possession that was lost. He is purchasing his possession back. And this is central to the gospel. I've said this before. If we lost the word savior, out of the Bible, and we had to find a replacement, Redeemer would be an excellent, excellent choice. And so the reflections for this part is that God has eternal purpose. He's always existed. He's, he does not die. He sovereignly rules over creation. And His intent is to redeem His people and all of creation as well, too. As it says in the last line, Somewhere. His eternal good purpose is to redeem a people for himself and his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. So this last sentence in this paragraph just speaks of many of these attributes of God. And we're going to get into some of these other ones in later weeks. In a couple, in uh, two weeks from now, we're going to look at creation. We're also going to look at uh, redeeming and redemption in um, like week five or six or something like that. So now we'll go back to number two. His love and his holiness. And let me read this sentence again. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect in both his love and his holiness. Now, holiness is the... uh, There is absolutely no flaw, moral flaw whatsoever to God. He's pure. He is good. He is right. He's he's holy. And this is why why Moses, when he sees this bush, and the voice speaks to him out of the bush and says, take off your sandals because the place that you are standing is what? Holy Holy ground. Because God was there. God's holiness was there. Now, the whole Bible speaks of God's holiness. It speaks of humanity's lack of holiness. We do not measure up to God's standard of holiness. And we've inherited this problem uh, from from the very first human couple. This This is a problem that we have. So you have God's creation, humanity, created in his image but God is holy, but yet humanity isn't. So now we've got a problem. So God is infinitely holy and yet perfectly loving as well, too. He loves, he loves his creation. He loves all of his creation. And he especially loves the pinnacle of his creation, human beings. So we've got a little bit of a problem here. But we're going to look into that. Now, there's a couple of errors. This is, it's essential that we hold God's love and his holiness together intention, that they actually do go together. These aren't two concepts that theologians came up with to describe God, and then we realize, oh, we've got a problem because they contradict each other. They really don't. They really don't contradict each other. So let's look at, let's look at one of the errors that is often made when we don't hold these two together. For instance, uh, error number one is a holy God without love. A holy God without love would be just a hate-filled God. And actually, we wouldn't really even exist. Because God would have to, unless he loves his creation, he would have to judge uh, anything that wasn't holy. He would have to purify it. He'd have to clean it. And this is often gets depicted that God the, God the Father in the Old Testament is a, a mean, angry, God who's just out to get people, but then all of a sudden Jesus came along, and Jesus is really loving, and he has to kind of step in there and go, "No, God, you're—he's an angry God, but I'm a—I'm a loving, good God." Um, this is not a really accurate understanding of the Trinity as well, too. It undermines the Trinity, but that's not an un- accurate understanding. Both the God of the Old Testament was holy and loving. God the Father is holy and loving. Jesus was holy and loving. The spirit is holy and loving as well, too. So this is one error that we want to avoid making to say that God is holy, but he lacks in, in love in any way. But there's another error that's equally dangerous as well, too, and that is a loving God who lacks or undermines his holiness. A loving God who undermines his, uh, or, or is lacked, lacks in holiness. This is a big problem as well, too. Because this, create, this is a God who then compromises or excuses sin. This would be a God who would promote injustice and just kind of shrugs his shoulder and says, well, I'm loving and therefore I can't really do anything about sin or wickedness, unrighteousness, evil deeds that are done. God goes, well, I, could just, I need to just look aside. That's not an accurate understanding of who God is as well either. So we can't have a God who is... Uh, holy but lacking in love because that would be uh, that would be a really mean hate-filled god that who who would want to love back but you don't want to have a loving god that lacks in holiness as well too because when we are wronged or there's injustices are committing committed we trust that there's a holy god who will judge one day and make those things right we need a god who is both holy and loving and that's what the position that we need to hold in balance. God is infinitely perfect in both his love and his holiness. And so that brings us to our text for our scripture this morning that was read in Exodus chapter 34. So let's go back to this. While you're turning there, let me give you a little bit of the background. We we were already in Exodus earlier. God calls Moses and he says, I want you to go and deliver my people out of uh, Pharaoh. Tell him, Pharaoh, let my people go. And so um, Moses goes, they go through, you know. Several different plagues, 10 plagues. Finally, the last plague is the death of the firstborn. Pharaoh says, go, take your people. They take their people out of Egypt. God leads them to Mount Sinai, and he's getting ready to give him his covenant, the 10 commandments, the two tablets of stone that we talked about and what was read. And so um, God is making this, this covenant arrangement, and he's speaking with Moses on the top of Mount Sinai. All of the rest of the people are down at the bottom. And the people are wondering... Where Moses is, he's kind of, he's taken a long time, so they come to Aaron and he says, my namesake, I'm always like, thanks a lot, parents, um, comes to Aaron and he goes, hey, this Moses, we don't know what's happened to him, why don't you make us gods for us? And so Aaron, being a, you know, a man of integrity goes, no, we should wait, Moses told us to wait. Or being a man of integrity goes, no, that would not be a right thing to do because God had told us you not to make any other images. I've unfortunately, again, thanks parents for giving me that name. Aaron goes, okay, why don't you just give me all your gold and we'll melt it all down and we'll make it we'll make a god. We'll make them a little a little golden calf. And uh I always pictured them like humongous, like this, you know, like that's a lot of gold. They actually have uncovered little golden calf idols, and they're only like this big. I always thought they were like huge, you know. My children's storybook bible, they're like Humongous. And you got to carry him around on a cart. Um, so no, they were like little tiny things. So they melt him down and he makes this God. And then they're all just dancing around and worshiping this golden calf. And god, hear, god, god hears from the top of the mountain what is going on. And Moses goes down there. He's angry. He breaks the two tablets of stone because immediately, like the day they're entering into covenant with God, they've already broken like the first three. Of the 10, you know, like they're, you know, 0 for three, you're not going to keep going on it. So anyways, so, um, uh, this is a fascinating story. Next is chapter 33 at the end of 33. No, stop there. Let's just go to, back to verse 30 or chapter 34. So the Lord says to Moses, he goes cut for two tablets of stone. Um, Moses tries to intercede for the people of, of, uh, Israel. He said, why don't you actually blot my name out of the book of life? He offers himself, which is an interesting picture. You have one person trying to substitute himself to save an entire nation of people. Moses says, blot me out of your book. And God says, no thanks, because I have somebody for that. And that's coming. And he says, so he says instead, why don't you take the two tablets of stone, like the first ones that were broke, and so Moses cut the two tablets of stone, verse 4, like the first. He rose up early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him and took his, his hand to tablets of stone, verse 5. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. See, it's all capitals, all capitals. The Lord, and what does the Lord do? He proclaims the name of the Lord. He comes down to proclaim his own name. Verse 6, the Lord, Yahweh, passed before him and proclaimed. This is a quote. The Lord, the Lord. Or Yahweh, Yahweh. Remember what we said earlier about calling a name twice? seven times in the Bible. This is the eighth time. This is God calling his own name twice. The Lord, the Lord. And now he describes the essence of his character. A God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Stop there. Merciful, gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is in the Old Testament. Like this is... This is describing Yahweh, the God of the Old Testament. Merciful, gracious. And it's as evident because he hasn't wiped out the Israelites like he very well could have. He, you know, already he's being merciful and gracious and slow and abounding um, in steadfast love. Keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. They keep reading but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. So he's merciful, gracious, loving, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, forgiving sin, but he has to judge sin. He will not clear the guilty. God is loving and holy at the same time. God is loving and holy at the same time. It's important that we keep this in balance. Now, this key this creates a big problem for us as well, too. Because, um, well, who's guilty? <laughs> well, we all are. So now we've got a big problem. God is kind of holding off that we're all guilty... Okay, God, that's great. You're going to you're loving and merciful and gracious and abounding in steadfast love. But but we're all guilty. What can be done about it? This is, this is where the gospel is of utmost important, importance. Because you have God coming as a man, taking the judgment that everyone is to receive. Jesus is declared guilty and is given in place of everyone. Jesus is declared guilty so that we could be declared righteous when we have faith in him. This is the good news. Matter of fact, turn with me to Romans chapter 3. I wasn't planning on going here. I'm keeping you late. Romans chapter 3, verse verse 24. Well, let's go to 23. All, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Paul is telling basically this issue that we are all guilty. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Basically, a a sacrifice of atonement. Substituting atonement. It's referring to the Old Testament temple sacrifice system. By a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show. This is the why. So if you ever want to know why Jesus went onto the cross. This is one of the clear verses for us. Right here in verse the second half of 25. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Why did Jesus have to come in the flesh as a person? So that God could be just in dealing with sin and punishing sin. At the same time, he wanted to justify his people. He wanted to declare them right. So God's caught in this quandary. He's loving, but he's holy. He has to be just, but he's loving. So you have Jesus coming as a man in our place for our sins. I say that to say, if you take a God who's loving and not holy, or a God who's holy and not loving, infinitely so, in both ways, you don't have a gospel anymore. Because it's a holy and loving God that brought Jesus to, to die in our place. That's the, go- the gospel. That's the good news. So we believe in one God, eternally existing in three persons, and this one true and living God is infinitely perfect in both his love and his holiness. Isn't that amazing to think about? That in the depths, whatever whatever sin you might feel, guilt you might feel like you've experienced, to know that there was a God who actually was willing to substitute himself in your place. A holy God was willing to do that. A loving God was willing to do that. That's why we sing. That's why I sing. That's good news. A holy, loving God. Let's stand, um, let's close our time by standing and let's read this paragraph again together. And then I will close close with a benediction. Let's read the triune God. We believe in one God, eternally existent, in three equally divine persons the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who know, love, and glorify one another. This one true and living God is infinitely perfect, both in his love and in his holiness. He is the creator of all things, visible and invisible. And is therefore worthy to receive all glory and adoration. Immortal and eternal, he perfectly and exhaustively knows the end from the beginning, sustains and sovereignly rules over all things, and providentially brings about his eternal good purposes to redeem a people for himself and restore his fallen creation to the praise of his glorious grace. Amen and amen. Now, may the love of God and the grace of Christ and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, one God, three persons, be with all of you. Peace be with you. (laughs)